Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Welcome to this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. I'm Claudia Mirandi. Joining me is my colleague Bev Sheckman. And if you follow us, you know that part of what we do is not only do we advocate on behalf of pain patients, but of course we advocate on behalf of prescribers who have been terrorized, and I mean terrorized, by the government. And my pain patient stories used to keep me awake at night until I started to learn about what the government was doing to doctors. Today, we have an extremely courageous doctor joining us. His name is Dr. Jay Joshi. Welcome to the podcast, Jay. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. And Jay, you and myself, wait, yeah, you and myself, there's three of us here on this podcast. (laughs) We've, We've talked with you so many times in the past. And when I first connected with you, I was horrified by what happened to you. Quick synopsis, Jay, tell us what happened. You're practicing medicine, and then one day, what happens? Well, this really started about 2017, when I had a former employee who was writing scripts under my name. I uh, reported her to the police, and I didn't really hear much about that after the fact. And what I come to find out later on is that triggered a DEA investigation into me. And an undercover agent came in uh, claiming to have lower extremity, cramp-like leg pain, uh, and stated that he was a truck driver from Florida and needed to continue his uh, pain medication. And so he said he had a moderate dose of Vicodin. And uh, when I saw him, I mentioned I wasn't comfortable continuing that high of a dose. I would rather start on a lower dose, but continue the medication as he stated he was taking because I chose to trust the patient. He came about four times over those four visits. We worked to taper his medication slightly. We ordered imaging studies, which he asked to defer until after he got his insurance. And we reviewed his prescription database. A few months after that, uh, this is now the end of 2017, uh, the DEA comes and raids my clinic. And they state that my trusting of this undercover agent was effectively a crime. And they took medical records, they searched the clinic, they interrogated me for what seemed to be four or five hours. And essentially coerced me into signing away my DEA license. Oh well, my God. Jay, let's start for, let's talk about the undercover agent. Was it an undercover agent for the DEA or for enforcement agency? It was for the DEA. And I remember them mentioning this, that he was trained in Quantico and he was a DEA agent. And they somehow made it seem that because he was trained in Quantico, that I should have known that he was not a legitimate chronic pain patient. Oh my gosh. What a <laughs> dick. What an absolute. So this dick comes. And you know what? I come from a law enforcement family, but I'm sorry. The DEA needs to be defunded. That's it. You know, they set you up, Jay. That's all they did is they set you up. So now you're a doctor. You're not a lawyer. You don't know what to do. And they're probably, because I think they're terror. So here you are in your clinic. And, and what are they, what do they coerce you to do, Jay? Well, a couple of things. One, they told me I have to leave my clinic and follow them to a local police station. And so they put me in an interrogation cell. I don't understand what's going on. A bunch of DEA agents are coming in with AK-47s telling me I have to do something. I'm going to do it. And so I go into an interrogation cell. 
and they started targeting various aspects of my practice. What did you do with this patient? What did you do with that patient? And you're alone, Jay. Jay, are you alone or did you call a lawyer or you're just following? You're a law-abiding citizen. Did were, were you alone? I was alone and I was obeying what the DEA agents told me to do. Oh, my fucking word. Oh, I'm sorry. I get so... Because these are, do- Jay is a doctor. So for, for, for the listeners, you're listening to us right now. Jay did nothing wrong. Jay is a doctor. Jay wasn't trained how to respond to a Quantico trained agent. Undercover so- agent. Jay, can I ask you when he, you said he came in on a moderate dose. What, do you remember what that dose was that he said he was on? And also what about his like medical records and his prescription drugs? And like, did he have any like fake? Cause we've heard that sometimes they'll get fake insurance records and all of that. Yeah, certainly. So there's a couple of questions there. So he claimed to be a truck driver from Florida. Okay. He had a license. Uh, we uh, uploaded the license. We asked him for his medical records, and we even got him to sign a consent for release for the medical records. But obviously, where we sent the release to, we didn't get a response because it was all just fake numbers. He stated because he was moving from Florida to Indiana that he didn't have insurance just yet, which is legitimate. A lot of times patients who are on Medicaid or independent contractors, when they move from state to state, they have to wait a few weeks or a few months to get the insurance. Indiana is notorious in delayed onset for the Medicaid plans. I've seen this for many patients. And in that interval, I would provide them a discount until they can get their insurance. I provided an imaging study and we reviewed the prescription record. And because it was a dummy name, then none of it came up. And everything. What was his name? What was his dummy name? Todd Greenberg. Todd Greenberg. A Jewish guy. A Jewish truck driver. (laughs) You don't say, Jay. From Florida. (laughs) Do you know his real name? Not that. I I don't believe I was actually given his. Jay, what dose of of Vicodin did he claim to be on? He was on Vicodin 10, 500, three times a day. I told more conflict 7.5325 sorry the sound cut out a little bit there but what jay said was he had told the patient that he felt more comfortable giving him 7.5325 of hydrocodone as opposed to 10500 which back then 500 milligrams of tylenol was allowed in hydrocodone today it isn't but it was then <music> Just going to take a quick break from this podcast to give a shout out to our new patrons that have subscribed to the DPF Patreon page since July 3rd. We just want to let you know that we are so, so grateful for your support and hope you're enjoying the content. Shout out to Lynn, Brandy, Renee, Elizabeth, Melissa, Karen, Daryl, Claude, Laura, Carmen, Marilee, Sophia, Ruth, Cassandra, Eileen, Sherry, Kim, Lori, Diana, Elizabeth, Sandra, Cece, Ellen, Roxanne, Lori, Marguerite, Jamie, Susan, Robert, Andrea, Julie, Kiri, Cheryl, Lee, and Joe Alice. We are so grateful for your support and we can't wait to bring you more content. And that's not even the high. That's 30 milligrams of Viking in a day and you still were like, you know, let's lower it. So you did exactly what what they suggest. The CDC guidelines said not even to be concerned until it's over 50. And that was well below 50. So what was their problem? I think the problem was simply that I made the decision to trust 
this patient and they felt that the degree of trust was not warranted based off of what they presumed to be a lack of oversight. So effectively not trust their patients. It's basically what they're saying. They want every doctor to be suspicious that their patient could possibly be an undercover Quantico agent. I think what they want is that they want physicians to inherently distrust patients when physicians should implicitly trust patients. And I think that's why you see a lot of problems in healthcare when the trust is gone, that basic relationship between a patient and physician is is dissolved. It att- yeah. essentially turns into a legal transaction. You know? Yeah. You get, government- you get that image. Sorry, Jay, the government has destroyed the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship. It, re- it really has. What a shame. And and Jay, we know that you would traumatizing experience for you. You went to prison. How long I were did. you in prison for? 11 months, one week, and three days. But, you know, who's who's counting? Oh, my goodness, Jay. And, and, and we would find you. And we're so thankful that we've connected with Dr. Jay Joshi. And, Jay, you really talk about your experience in your new book, The Burden of Pain. Uh, so, folks, don't forget. We're going to have all this information for you about his book. We're going to discuss the book now, but remember the title, Burden of Pain. Jay, why did you feel the need to write this book? I felt the need to write this book because we have to tell our stories. Patients, providers, families, loved ones, those who are affected by misguided government policies and the opiate epidemic have to tell our stories so the public understands the narratives that they're being fed is not correct. And until we speak out, we're going to be continue to be disenfranchised. You know, I had put out a TikTok video earlier today, uh, and I always tell people, never believe what the media says. And the title of my TikTok video today was, Doctor Pleads Guilty to Prescribing 3 Million Oxycodone Tablets to Harmonica Playing Elephants. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because there's only a kernel of truth in these sensational headlines and i think so often you know we read that doctors plead guilty why did you plead guilty and why hasn't your conviction been vacated yet a couple of things one i did not have the opportunity to provide a good faith defense Uh, this was back in 2018 effectively it was my trusting of the patient versus the dea's interpretation of my clinical behavior And you have non-clinically trained DEA agents who will look at this scenario and say, well, that trust was, quote unquote, reckless and therefore, quote unquote, criminal. Now, fortunately, things are starting to get better, particularly with the Supreme Court case Ruan v. United States, which I was um, uh, involved in as an amicus party, as a third party guest. And now we're starting to see the courts recognize that a physician who operates in good faith, who treats his or her patients in good faith, If you want to question the clinical decision-making, please, by all means, go ahead. But you cannot charge that physician as a criminal if there was no criminal intent. And it sounds so obvious, but until 2022, DEA agents could go after physicians and simply claim some sort of documentation mishap constitutes the factual basis of a crime. And that's scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your your conviction hasn't been vacated. So I was an amicus party on the um, Supreme Court case. I filed a formal complaint against the DEA agents involved in my case with the Office of the Inspector General. The OIG transferred that complaint after reviewing it and finding it valid to the Office of Professional Responsibility. 
they are now undergoing the investigation. Okay. So what what happens is that when you have a federal conviction, not only do you have to prove that you're innocent in order to get it vacated, but you have to prove that there was government misconduct that led to that conviction. So the fact that I did not exhibit criminal intent is pretty self-evident just on a cursory review of the documents. So that's part one. Now, part two is making sure that the government validates the misconduct by the DEA agents. And once that's established, I will then proceed to vacate my conviction. And the OIG has to make that determination. The OIG determines whether my complaint against the DEA agents was valid, which they did. And then they transferred it on to the Office of Professional Responsibility, which is another one of these kind of, you know, alphabet soup government agencies. But that agency is directly responsible for documenting whether misconduct took place by a federal agent. And in this case, a federal DEA agent. You know, if you're a doctor who's listening to this right now, Take some advice. Most doctors that I've communicated with think they're doing something good when they remain suspicious to a regulatory agency, and it only backfires. So don't report anything. If you're a pharmacist who's listening to this, stop getting involved. Don't do it anymore because you're destroying medicine. Because oftentimes these. I yep. just heard in my state, there was just a podcast done from my medical board, which I had no idea in North Carolina, as of 2019, it's a law that the doctors must report each other, any healthcare professional must report each other if they have any concern at all for prescribing. So now they have it right on their website, North Carolina Medical Board, where they could just click something and 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 like report doctors. And that, they make it, it's everywhere like that, though, like with, yeah. you know, Don't. like. Don't do it because it's only going to backfire and you're going to be the person who gets screwed. I promise you on this. That's right. It's only going to backfire on you. Keep your nose clean. Keep your head down and don't stop. Stop reporting people because you're destroying medicine. You're you're not doing anything good. That's for people who are listening to us. Okay. Now, Jay, there's so much confusion because there's another doctor with your, well, uh, your name, but his name is Jay Deep Joshi. Now you're in Indiana. And this other Joshi, Dr. Joshi, he's in Illinois. Why are there so many different articles claiming you're imitating him? Yeah, and I think that's something from the DEA agents who enabled this behavior from this uh, individual by the name of Jadeep Joshi. But effectively what had happened was after I pled guilty, there was a slew of um, articles uh, initiated by Jadeep Joshi who got support from a uh, Illinois congressman named Raja Krishnamurti, who he has a personal relationship with. And again, I don't think that the congressman was involved in any capacity. I think he was just helping who he believed to be was a friend. Doesn't really prove to be a friend because um, now the congressman is in potential liability. But um, he basically used a PR firm that was um, reserved for politicians and uh, started paying. He has a budget for an SEO campaign, has a budget to pay off journalists. And uh, he wrote a series of articles, one that reached the Chicago Tribune, claiming that I was imitating him. Now, why did he do this? Oh, my God. Here we go. Once again, it's doctors destroying each other's doctors. Okay, let's let's break this down for listeners, because this is not only is this interesting, but you're Jay, are you Indian? I'm Indian. Is the other Jay Deep Joshi Indian? (laughs) He's also Indian. Is that is that congressperson Indian? Raja Krishnamurti is also Indian. Okay. Isn't that kind of strange that three respectable Indian professionals, not you, Jay, the other they're they're attacking each other. I don't and and, but oftentimes the federal government targets Indian doctors, Jewish doctors, elderly doctors, 
female doctor. See, there's a theme to all of this, but it just sounds like your situation is unique because there's another JD, there's another J Joshi in Illinois. Well, well, I I will say this. I don't think it's unique in the sense that this was government induced hysteria and misinformation in order to confuse and conflate facts from fiction in the eyes of the public. I think that this was, if I had to break it down and how I looked at everything now, and by the way, I have uh, spoken to uh, Congressman Raja Krishnamurti, and um, he had told me that he was not aware that this lawsuit was so frivolous. And had he known that, he would not have enabled this J.D. Joshi character. Uh, you know, and, and I believe him. I believe that the congressman acted in good faith, helping out who he believed was a friend in, in need. But uh, it, it kind of goes to show you that people manipulate the suffering of others for personal advantage. This J.D. Joshi individual knew I was going through a situation. And instead of reaching out and trying to help, he got upset because I I, I don't know. I, I still to this day don't know. But what I do know is that he received political help in order to create a campaign that basically made the DEA look like amateurs. And on top of that, the DEA introduced his letters into the criminal case knowing that there was no factual basis for it. So the government was basically introducing false documents into the criminal case just to add to the hysteria and give this frivolous lawsuit a sense of credibility. But is he saying that his reputation has been tainted because you have the same name? I think so. But what's really curious about all of this is that we know a few of the same physicians because obviously the Indian medical community is relatively small. So while he was broadcasting all these claims and I was imitating him in the public, privately, he was telling other physicians whom we both know that, no, there's no basis to this imitation. He just wants to get money out of what happened because he's claiming his practice was harmed financially, even though the documents that we obtained and the legal proceedings prove otherwise. So on one hand, publicly, he's stating, I'm imitating him. On the other hand, privately, he's stating that he's doing this in order to recuperate financially. So even how he's phrasing this is quite dishonest. And I think it mirrors just the overall dishonesty about this narratives around the opiate epidemic, because quite frankly, it's all really taken the healthcare system by storm. And we were not ready for this. And in the confusion and chaos, we just saw a lot of bad actors show their true colors. That includes the DEA and that includes this J.D. Joshi individual. Oh, my God. What a mess. You know, I want to mention one other thing, because oftentimes I, I've, I've spoken with a lot of Indian doctors who have, I, I use the word terrorized. They've been terrorized. But Jay, I just haven't seen the Indian community come out and support the doctors. If anything, it's like they've turned their backs on on you guys. And they're like you've shamed them. And I'm just not I'd like to see more support from the Indian community in the future. And hopefully we can do that because there is no support after your life is shut down by the DEA. Oftentimes, you know, spouses leave the doctors, you're left penniless. And I think it would be nice to see more of a support system uh, within the Indian community, because it's a small medical community. And it and it should be there. You would think, right? And I think the fact that there is a lack of cultural cohesiveness in the Indian community, you see that to a less extent, uh, lesser extent in the Jewish community. Uh, the prosecutors know this. They know that there is a cultural shame factor when you 
are going after Indian physicians or Jewish physicians, or really any sort of immigrant minority that has a certain strong cultural bond that isn't fully yet ingrained into the Americanized culture, they know that there's going to be that shame factor and they play to it because it makes the defendant easier to target. That's and I think what terrible. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a, it's a reality. As a prosecutor, when you make a decision to target a physician, you look into these various factors. Can, the def- can that physician defend himself or herself? How much money have they made? How much money are they able to allocate for a legal defense? And they calculate all of this to then determine how easy a conviction could be garnered. And I'm not saying that prosecutors are doing this with malicious intent. You're I'm not? They do- You're not? <laughs> I well, am, uh, I not am. not not all prosecutors, but I do think that there are quite a few that are looking to exploit physicians for personal gain. That is for sure. Oh, Jay, you really are a good guy, because I got to tell you, as a former court reporter, I hate prosecutors. I think that I think when a prosecutor finds his or her moral compass, it's when they start defending people. Uh, prosecutors, you know, we go back to that attorney general, Josh Shapiro who's now the governor. This is just a, a political game, but you're, you're a better, you know, Jay, you, you really surprised me because you're so, you remain optimistic. And I would imagine in your book, The Burden of Pain, you discuss what, what's happened to you. Uh, in the second part of your book, The Burden of Pain, you talk about policy. What's the main takeaway in this discussion? The main takeaway in part two is to understand that healthcare has uncertainty it's inherently uncertain, meaning when you go to a physician's office and you discuss your clinical condition, there's always going to be a certain level of subjectivity in how you communicate, what you communicate and how it's perceived. Instead of overly simplifying that and stating something is criminal or not criminal, let's look at the complexity of the clinical encounter and really start to appreciate how much chronic pain patients go through and try to find solutions that make their lives easier and balance patient-centric health with general oversight. There is a way to find that balance, but we just keep skewing from one extreme to the other. And in the process, we're hurting patients. And what I state in the book is the burden of pain is a changing perception of pain. Back in the 90s, we treated pain more liberally because we wanted to avoid pain-induced inflammation. Now we've gone to the other extreme where prescribing opioids is effectively putting the gun to a physician's face by saying, you may be legally liable even if the opioid is medically necessary. And I think we need to find a balance. And that comes from looking at what's right for the patient while also looking at what's right for society. Yeah, because these poor people, they're they're forced to jump through unimaginable hoops now. You know, they're forced on medications that aren't, aren't indicated to treat pain. They're being offered huge doses of antidepressants, crazy pain stimulators, hundreds of painful, unnecessary injections, psychological evaluations, drug testing every two weeks. And I get it. You know, I I get it. And I, you know, we say all the time, you don't want to write a script for an opioid. That's one thing. But don't you dare gaslight your patient. And I think that's fair. You don't want to write the script. Don't write the script. But Come on, you got to stop treating the patient like dog shit at this point. Because, and the government, they've they've created this situation. The DEA has destroyed the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship. We need a DOJ oversight hearing. Jay, how? When was your published? When did the? When did this all come about? The book Burden of Pain was published on May sixteenth. 
uh, and it's available on all outlets online, Amazon, IngramSpark, BarnesandNobles.com. So it should be relatively easy to find. Just Google Burden of Pain, yeah, Jay but- Joshi, and you'll find it. Excellent. And what's been the reception so far? Thank God it, it's been uniformly positive. Okay. I, I feel like so many chronic pain patients feel like this book can advocate for how they feel but are unable to express themselves with. A lot of physicians are thanking me for finally getting it out there about how they're being attacked and maligned by the DEA. And it's a welcomed voice in a world where perspectives like mine and other disenfranchised patients and physicians are just so harshly silenced. Yeah. And really, so many times when I talk with lawyers that are representing the doctors, they'll say, you know, we don't want to bring awareness to this. And I feel like if we brought more awareness to what's happening, like Siobhan Reynolds did, we could maybe stop the bleeding, but people are afraid. And, you know, Jay, what I've noticed since we've been following each other is you've been started to write a lot of these legal briefs, much like Dr. Leslie Pompey, and now you're changing the the conversation around opioid policy. Uh, Let's talk about some of your efforts. Uh, You know, how can doctors follow any of the, these legal briefs that you've been writing? So by nature, a legal brief has to correspond with a specific case. And so I would recommend physicians, healthcare providers, and patients to closely follow federal and state cases that involve opioids, opioid prescribing, or the investigative tactics against physicians. And they're available. There's public dockets. A lot of times, Patients, particularly chronic pain patients, have a pulse on what's going on at the state and federal level. So just keep your eyes and ears open at an online level. And when if you find a case that you feel can resonate with what you believe, write. And I have to tell you, the legal briefs that I write are not in traditional format. And rightfully so. I'm not a lawyer, nor do I aspire to be one. I am a physician who wants to get in the conversation of judges and prosecutors and attorney generals. I want to say I am here at the table and my voice will be recognized. So I write the briefs. I introduce what I believe to be medically appropriate context to the legal cases. Context, I'll mind you, is very rarely found and often ignored because it's something that lawyers, prosecutors, and judges don't understand. So I'm introducing myself into the conversation stating, you are missing a major component of this case that you are adjudicating over. You need to hear from physicians and you need to hear from me. And I think a lot of physicians are not willing to introduce themselves into the conversation because they feel there may be retaliation sure, and, yeah. and r- rightfully so. I mean, right, I'm, right. I, 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 I'm in constant vigilance of things that could be misconstrued or people who may be trying to set me up or retaliate against me. But one of the things I often felt from the beginning when I was first indicted up until now is that all of this is happening for a reason. And I'm going to continue to speak because there's really nothing that they can do that they haven't already done. That's right. That's right. And yet here I stand. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. I got to ask you, how are you? How are you today? (laughs) I'm I'm good. You know, I'm just very grateful that I'm here on a Sunday talking to you two. You know, it's it's a, it's a good day every time I can talk to you, Claudia. Yeah, you poor and guy. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, they put you through hell. And I just, I mean, you did time, Jay. Yeah. Like, a la- I mean, what the fuck is going on in this country where we're sending doctors to and prison? That's what people will want. I mean, whatever you're comfortable with, Jay, but there's two things I know people are going to want to talk 
talk to you about one, what happened to your patients after, after they were cut off or what happened to them after you were arrested? And two, what are some things that you can share about your time in prison? Like, what was it actually like? Cause we have other doctors yeah. who are there right now, Dr. Bauer, Dr. Edelglass and I know people are wanting to know. So whatever you're comfortable with, if you could answer those. up. So Jay, we know that our listeners want to know, well, because we've got Dr. Bill Bauer, 86. He just sent me a letter from prison. I didn't sleep for two nights. I was, you know, what can we do for doctors? And people have all these questions. What was prison like for you? Yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Because it's extraordinarily humiliating, particularly going from a physician to effectively an incarcerated inmate. It's, it's quite a big jump, right? It, it's a big jump for any individual. It's a big jump in society. I think part of how I survived all of this was really just remaining, I, I don't want to say objective or, or neutral, but rather just kind of understanding that everything that was happening, which is so surreal, so absurd, that I couldn't buy into it. I, I had to try to just remain as apart from it as possible. I mean, two things that really come to mind. One, after the DEA raid, Two patients of mine died. One of them directly lost her life due to a suicide following a DEA agent pointing an AK-47 to her head. <gasps> what? And, yeah. wait, 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 What do you mean? What's so, that? so this is a patient, and I write about her in my book. Okay. She was coming to my clinic that day for telepsychiatry. Okay. She was not even taking opioids. She actually was taking a benzodiazepine and is taking Suboxone to wean herself off of the benzodiazepine and her previous heroin use months before. And she had agreed to start telepsychiatry because I told her, I am more than comfortable continuing your medications and working on a tapering schedule as you feel appropriate, but you also should go through some counseling. And she said, I can't find a counselor. So I arranged a telepsychiatrist and she would come and speak with that telepsychiatrist at my office. Well, that was the day of the raid. And she started complaining to the DEA agent saying, what you're doing is wrong. You got the wrong physician. Please stop this. The DEA agent yelled at her, told her to keep quiet, you know, obviously used a lot more vulgar language than that. And um, she wouldn't stop. So they eventually told her to lie down and they pointed a gun at her. And oh my what have the fa- have you spoken with the families i i have and i've actually told uh, the family to uh, file for dr St- uh, stefan cartez as a yeah. uh, clinical study which uh, chronicles patient suicides following o- opiate events and dea events and i think that it's important that this uh, particular case be chronicled and evaluated academically because so it, it, it was sorry to cut you off i need to- so they held a gun to her head and then they told her to lie down and then they pointed a gun to her head while she was lying down. Yeah. And then she committed suicide later on because she lost her medication or just from the trauma of everything? Uh, uh, honestly, I'm not qualified to say one or the other, but both events are quite, as you can imagine, uh, staggering in the mind of somebody who is going through therapy, trying to make positive changes in her life just to see the federal government come in and just behave in just the most atrocious of manners. I, I will say this. Two days after the raid, she came back to the clinic, scared, petrified, and she and I just basically sat together for about 20 minutes and she was crying. She was inconsolable. And it was clear that what that DEA agent did to her affected her. I, I can't say for sure whether that was a triggering event, but I would say that that in conjunction with the abrupt discontinuation of the medications together 
led to what had happened. And, you know, it's a shame that the DEA is not willing to take accountability for that. Because a I, shame. I, I, a shame. They got to be forced. They got to sue these, these agents personally. And Claudia, I, it happens in another case. I can't remember which one where it was people in the waiting room. They weren't allowed to get medical care. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah. Remember that doctor, that poor guy. And they died. The patient died because they were like having mm-hmm. a heart attack or something yep. in the and they wouldn't let them get medical care. But Jay, did you ever, before this raid, before this happened, did you ever have a patient overdose, die? Anything like where there's that where they're going to be like, oh, well, you you had five patients overdose from opioids before. There was one situation where there was a patient who had come to my clinic requesting opioid abuse medications, um, Suboxone, and um, I uh, provided that to the patient. I didn't see the patient after that. The patient subsequently overdosed off of medications given by another physician, but okay. they, uh, the DEA agents tried to uh, include that as evidence in my case, but it got thrown out because I was not the physician who prescribed the medications that the patient eventually overdosed on. And oh. in fact, if you look at the clinical records, um, I, I actually did what was right for the patient yeah. and the other physician should have been questioned, but you know, I, it wasn't, it wasn't in the cards for the DEA. I was the one that they had. So they wanted to concoct the evidence against me. So whatever didn't fit their narrative, they basically dismissed. And how did they, what made them put their sights on you, Jay? Do you know, like what caused them to look at you to begin with? Yeah, there was a former employee who was forging scripts under my name. That's it. Okay. And um, I I reported her uh, to the Munster police. And I think what had happened, and again, this is part of the exculpatory evidence that I'm looking to unseal that'll, one, help to vacate my conviction, and two, help to verify the misconduct from the DEA agents. But after I filed a police report against that employee, my suspicion is that the DEA agents then approached that employee and said, yep. can, you help, can you help us get Dr. Yep. Joshi? That's right. That's, That's what they do. That's what we hear. So before we wrap this up, I do, I want to ask you, Jay, how many patients did you have on controlled substances that were, did they let you help them find new doctors? Did they help find them new doctors? Were they concerned at all about your patients at, or was it even in the discussion for for, for these agents when they held a gun to everyone's head? Yeah, certainly. Um, a couple of questions you asked. Let me just go one by one. Yeah. So the DEA claimed that I had written 6,000 pain scripts. The OIG has verified that I had written around 1,400, 1,400, which right. puts me just below what the average opioid prescribing sure. rate was in, in Northwest Indiana um, in 2017. Yeah. Uh, so the DEA knew that they were fabricating evidence. Yeah. The second thing is, um, in terms of my patients, yeah. after the DEA raid, there was a scarlet letter on every single one of my patients. So none of them could find reliable primary care physicians because when they would, when new physicians would ask those patients, who was your previous physician? And they would say my name, then those uh, primary care physicians or pain specialists wouldn't want to see them because they felt as if seeing my former patients would then trigger a DEA investigation onto them. So what happens is that the DEA, whether directly or indirectly, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and again, this is giving them a huge benefit of the doubt that the DEA probably doesn't deserve. One way or the other, patients who are in some way connected to a physician who was targeted by the DEA effectively become marked patients. 
and they do not receive the care that they need because the physicians and nurse providers are looking at their own legal liability and will often choose to protect themselves instead of taking care of the patients. Well, and Jay, and I have to tell you that I've listened to, you know, I'm sort of obsessed with these algorithms and risk scores and how they target doctors. And we listen to, so SAS, the company, I don't know if it's SAS or SAS, but they're the ones that OIG had create their algorithm, their toolkit for how they flag doctors. And in one of their videos, they actually said that um, they showed it like in a, in a distance map where they showed like little dots are all the patients that were abandoned and the doctor was arrested. And they said, look at all those dots go to this next doctor. They said, it's like ants to an anthill. They said, that's how we find our next target. So the doctors aren't so far off when they're afraid. And plus we did just, have, did you read our message today? We had someone just message today saying that. From Connecticut. Uh, yeah. Their doctor was shut down. Every time they call a new practice, they find out who the doctor was. And because of that, they won't take them. So, Jay, this is still happening. The same thing six years yeah. later. Um, and your patients, do you know how many of them? Do you keep in touch with any of them now? Have you gotten back in touch with them to know how they're doing? Oh, my God. I mean, every day I get a new text message, social media outreach from a patient asking me how I'm doing and uh, asking me when I'm going to come back and practice or whatnot. It's a it, it's unbelievable how fearful the healthcare community has become because of the DEA. And what really saddens me is that I would like the DEA to hold themselves accountable or at least admit that what they're doing is wrong and that they're operating on the premise that a physician is a drug dealing establishment. Think about this for a second. If you are targeting patients in this way, where you're following where they're going from physician to physician, you're effectively looking at patients as if they are drug addicts obtaining illicit substances and are using the patients to then go after the quote unquote drug dealer. Now, when you look at it in that context, you clearly see the malintent from the DEA because physicians are not drug dealers and patients are not addicts. But by conflating the two, they're now creating investigative policies that materially impact how physicians and nurses prescribe and what legal liability they perceive themselves to be at. Yeah. Uh, you know what I think? I think the DEA, I think these are thugs. These are cops with associate's degrees. And I'd like to see some of these agents be sued. And I know that they have this qualified immunity. That's something else that we need to let go of in this country. Nobody should be enjoying qualified immunity. We should well, be well, able Claudia, to sue them. Claudia, let's, let, let's explore that for a little bit because I think that's really important. Um, we want law enforcement agents to do what's right for society. And often that means putting themselves at risk. But we protect law enforcement agents who put themselves at risk if what they are doing is perceived to be in the best interest of society. Why are we not offering that same benefit to physicians where if you feel that they're quote unquote making a clinical decision that's in question, why are you targeting them as criminals when you yourself are qualified, you you yourself are giving yourself qualified immunity? That is such a good point, Jay. I actually have never thought of it like that. That's an excellent point. I wish you would write that. Can you write that out in a paragraph or something for real? That's a really good point. Yeah, I can do that. You know, I get the Office of Inspector General. It says our function is to prevent and detect fraud, waste, abuse, misconduct and mismanagement in the government. But that's exactly what the DEA is doing. Yeah. And so why isn't the Office of Inspector General investigating the DEA? 
So they have, but the OIG purview is only to look at broad DEA policy. So they have come down on the DEA, one, by acknowledging that the DEA did not do as much as it should have early in 2010, 2011, and that they had very lax policies. And only when you started having special interest groups uh, create a public outroar, whether that was justified or not, about opioids, did the DEA come in like cocaine cowboys. Yeah. So I think I think the OIG has acknowledged the DEA has many systemic failures. But what happened is, and this is in my personal experience, when you file a complaint against a specific DEA agent, the OIG first screens it and then determines whether that complaint is valid and then sends it to another agency that targets, that investigates specific agents. And so that's why my case got kicked to the Office of Professional Responsibility. And before you know it, Jay, uh, and, and this is this is how it works, because I, I worked in the federal grand jury system as a court reporter. All the, the, the ABC agencies, they all protect each other. Let's yeah, not fool do. ourselves, right? Seeing the dirtiest of the dirtiest shit go down in a courtroom and everybody's protected and it's wrong this system is flawed but you know jay i i just want people listen if you're listening to this podcast remember this book burden of pain dr jay joshi is really shedding light on what's happening to doctors and why you folks are suffering you folks are suffering because of the dea you folks are suffering because of government interference and jay thanks for you know taking time with us today i know we're going to continue this conversation on our video chat for our patreon subscribers so stay tuned the burden of pain jay joshi closing thoughts before we head over to do our video segment you know, I honestly just want to thank you, Claudia and Bev, for providing an outlet for physicians and patients to speak. What you guys are doing is truly amazing. I love the Patreon page. I love that you guys are taking your advocacy to the next level, formalizing it and creating a venue for patients to get their voices across because organized advocacy is needed. And the pain community has gone through years of grassroots advocacy. It's finally starting to change. Claudia, you've always been at the vanguard of that. I think taking this now to the next level is only going to help the many patients and physicians who are being targeted. So I salute you both for what you're doing. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for checking out this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. As you heard earlier, we launched a Doctor Patient Forum Patreon page a little less than two months ago. We have with every podcast that we are doing for Spotify, we also have a before or after the scene video podcast. If you would like to hear more from Dr. J. Joshi, please head on over to Patreon. We have a 45 minute after the show video podcast with the Jay, where he goes into a little bit more detail uh, about what he went through. And especially he discusses a little more about the patient who sadly took her life after the DEA agent held a gun to her head. We found that Patreon is a great platform. We have three tiers on Patreon, a $5 tier, a $15 tier, and a $30 tier. The link will also be in the show notes. Our Patreon page link is patreon.com slash the doctor patient forum. It's also listed in the show notes. Hope to see you over there. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, 
please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. Just a quick disclaimer, the information contained in this podcast should not be considered medical or legal advice.